took the Lithuanians 10 years to westernize, right? It took the Polish, you know, 12, 13 years to westernize their military. You're not going to do this in three years. The ones that were fighting in the, in the Donbass, right, they were learning, right? And that's where we saw kind of this empowering lower level leadership, right? Not having a super rigid hierarchical thing where the, you know, only the general can make a decision, right? The speed of combat in the 21st century is too fast for that. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And for this episode, I had a chance to talk to retired U.S. Army Colonel Liam Collins. Some listeners will recognize that name. Besides publishing widely in recent years on a range of topics, he's also the former director of MWI. But from 2016 to 2018, he also had a job focused on assisting the Ukrainian military with a series of pretty substantial reforms. That first-hand experience gives him a really insightful perspective on Ukraine's military capabilities. That's especially relevant today for, frankly, pretty obvious reasons. Russia has moved large numbers of troops to the area near its border with Ukraine and into neighboring Belarus. Tensions have been ratcheted up, and the situation is the subject of increased media attention and intense discussion within the military and national security community in the United States and within NATO. A while back, I had the chance to talk to Michael Kaufman for the MWI podcast about Russian capabilities and Moscow's intentions in the context of these developments. In this episode, we look at the Ukrainian side of the equation. Before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not subscribed to the MWI podcast, please do so. You can find it on your favorite podcast app. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Liam Collins. Liam, thank you for coming on the MWI podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. So given your background, there are um, sort of a lot of topics that I think we could kind of tackle that would make for a really interesting conversation. You're a retired army officer. You spent much of your career in the special operations community. Uh, you've done operational deployments all over the world. You were the director of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point and later of the Modern War Institute. But I really wanted to have you on because of one job in particular that you did. And and really, I think the unique perspective that job gives you on a topic that, that well, has everybody's attention right now, and that's Ukraine. In 2016, retired General John Abizade was appointed as, I guess, sort of an envoy to Ukraine to help the Ukrainian Defense Ministry with some um, some pretty substantial reforms. General Abizade accepted the position, but essentially said that he wanted you to be involved. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, how that came about and, and what the work entailed? Yeah, so... Uh Definitely an interesting experience, you know, probably one of the most unique experiences I had in the military, but to kind of start from the beginning. So in June of 2016, uh, the President Poroshenko of, of Ukraine signed what they called the Strategic Defense Bulletin of Ukraine, or what they called the uh, Strategic Bulletin. And what it was, was a uh, basically kind of an outline of how they wanted to re uh, reform their defense establishment. Very, fairly lengthy, but they had five areas they wanted to reform. And as part of that, they, they asked five nations to send strategic uh, defense advisors for reform over them to help them reform. So General Abizane was then appointed by the U.S. So we had uh, five total nations that sent senior defense advisors over there. Uh, the Canadians did. They sent uh, Ms. Jill, Jill Sinclair from their uh, Ministry of Defense. Uh, the Brits sent a um, 
Senate retired general, the, the Poles, the Lithuanians as well. And so what they realized, right, their, their military was in a dilapidated state in 2014, uh, really kind of a hollowed institution. So they were trying to reform that while they had the war going on. So imagine, you know, during when we were trying to reform or kind of do counterinsurgency in the height of the surge, and they were doing uh, defense reform in the height of a, a serious conflict in the East with the Donbass, even though it was kind of simmered down by that time. So that was our mission to go over there and help them reform that. So between 2016 and 2018, over there for every four to six weeks to help help them reform that. And they had five key areas that they were looking at, command and control, planning, operations, medical and log, and professionalization of the defense force. And who set those five areas? Was it was it kind of a result of Ukrainian institutional self reflection, or or more the product, I guess, of you know collaboration with those international partners you mentioned? Yeah, so it was, uh, I think, somewhat collaborative. I mean, the, the Ukrainians had some advisors from the U.S. I, I think through one of the think tanks to help them draft this, but ultimately, it was Ukrainians deciding what it would be and signing it uh, based off of where they thought they needed to be. And they were what they used as a model is kind of looked at what was NATO, right? They achieved they desire to achieve NATO membership and to be NATO interoperable. What are kind of the NATO standards? And so that's what they were trying to become. Uh, you know, not just to become NATO interoperable, but really to become a better defense institution. And your first trip over there was in the fall of 2016? Yep. So the first trip over there was in October of 2016, so right towards the end of the Obama administration. So we went over there, uh, spent about a week um, seeing different portions uh, out to the, you know, obviously got out into the the Donbass, out into the conflict zone, out into the east, and kind of the first look there. And within the Ukraine, within Ukraine, right, you know, talk to everybody from President Poroshenko, their chief of defense, minister of defense, you know, all the way on down. Uh, and then within the U.S., on, on our side, uh, when we would come back here speaking to um, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, when he came, when he, right when he came on board, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis, and then, you know, senior State Department officials as well. And on that first trip, what were your initial impressions? Yeah, when we first got over there, I mean, we saw a highly educated right force over there, and not to denigrate, you know, other I won't name other nations, but every advisor that we had over there said these are not like training. You name the country, right? They said these are highly motivated, these are educated individuals that want to defend their country, uh, and so they had a, a willing population base that could do that. It just the, the training and education within the within the defense wasn't there, right? They really didn't think they had to worry about you know a Russian invasion. I mean, for the equivalent would be Canada think you know war, you know having to worry about the U.S. invading them, just unfathomable from their point of view. So they were completely unprepared for it. You mentioned the five key areas for uh, for reform. Were there any of them in particular that sort of immediately stuck out where you said, "Wow, they really need to work on this." No, pretty much all those areas, they, they needed work in all of those areas. And over the two years, I mean, we saw significant reform in those areas, right? To, to, you know, in terms of planning, how do they become more effective at their planning, right? Capabilities-based planning, how they design a force based off of their need. Uh, command and control, right? How do they have, you know, a typical command and control structure that we, you know, would see in a, in a Western military, their, their medical and logistic systems basically didn't exist. When the when the Russians supported the separatists in the East early on in 2014 and 2015 and, 
And when they actually sent Russian formations, not to the level uh, that they had in the Republic of Georgia, when they sent 40,000 soldiers across the border, but there was some, you know, they sent T-90 tanks, their, their best tanks across the border. And they were pretty, in, they were basically impenetrable to what the Ukrainians had at the time. Uh, but they had no medical and logistical systems. And you saw this wave of volunteers go out to the east, you know, mo- many of them with no military experience at all, but helping kind of hold back that Russian advance and, and kind of hold the line where what we see now uh, with the Minsk agreements. But but really, it was volunteers helping, you know, kind of save the day back in 2014, 2015. I remember on one of my first trips to Ukraine with you, you probably remember it too, um, but I remember hearing a description of the Ukrainian military that essentially it's far more Soviet than the Russian military. And that's because the Russian military has evolved. It learned lessons in Chechnya uh, twice and in Georgia. Ukraine didn't have that same experience to sort of force reform and adaptation. I think that's really important because fixing something that is, you know, is being done improperly or, or maybe just suboptimally is a challenge to be sure. But fixing something that's, you know, that's outdated but rooted in history and tradition, what have you, can be a lot harder. You're you're essentially building better and more effective structures. But first, that means you know sometimes dismantling an artifice that is deeply rooted, and 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 that can be a challenge. I'm curious if you encountered that. Uh, essentially, things being done in a way that just felt outdated, but is perhaps an issue of well, you know, this is how we've always done it. Yeah, I mean, I just give you a simple example. The first time we went over there for a meeting. General Abizade said, hey, expect a very Soviet-style meeting. And I had no idea what that was going to mean. So we got there. We sat at the long table. He's sitting on one – General Abizade and I are sitting on one side. The Ukrainians, you know, their minister of defense, chief of defense, and and senior four-star generals are sitting on the other. They open up a book, read for about 20 minutes, close the book. There's no discussion, no dialogue, no questions, and everybody leaves. And I was like, what, what the hell was that? You know – and so, you know, just as simple as getting them to kind of open up and conduct a meeting, uh, right? Or like I said, they had this, what we call the SDB, right? Strategic Defense Bulletin. And everything was always going according to plan, right? It's kind of like a five-year Soviet plan. It's always going according to plan. It'd be like, no, no, it's not going according to plan. You know, these are very, some of these are very aspirational. And it took the Lithuanians 10 years to westernize, right? It took the Polish, you know, 12, 13 years to westernize their military. You're not going to do this in three years, right? And they just kind of getting to break that. But that was just kind of at that, at that, at that level. Um, but really down at the lower level, right? Like I said, the ones that were fighting in the, in the Dunbosch, right? They were learning, right? And that's where we saw kind of this, right? empowering lower level leadership, right? Not having a super rigid hierarchical thing where the, you know, only the general can make a decision, right? The speed of combat in the 21st century is too fast for that. And so we saw them learning really just because they had to out from their combat experience out in the field and then taking that to the training environment. So we really saw them, you know, much more capable. It was already, the training had already started when we got there, but, you know, over that two years, you know, real advancement at, at every level from medical logistics, right, improvements in all those systems to planning to their operationals. With respect to training and education specifically, you know, one of the things that I think is, um, and I think most people will agree, is a hallmark of a strong, robust, and uh, and relevant military training and education framework is a means of capturing lessons learned in combat and incorporating that into training and education. 
in Ukraine, you had tactical forces learning, I mean, learning a ton from their experience. Was there a mechanism in place for that learning to be captured and, and I guess, leveraged institutionally? Yeah, I think they did a fairly good job at that. But there was always that tension between some of the Western advisors and the Ukrainians where, uh, you know, sometimes in the West, we wanted to focus too much on their institutional reforms, which no doubt they needed where they were really wanting to focus on their operational reforms, right? Because they were still in combat and fighting combat and, and, and they didn't want to necessarily do an institutional reform where they weren't sure what, how they were going to benefit, right? Something as simple as, right, uh, civilian control of their military, which, which Western leaders were, were pushing for hard at the time because their military was being led, right? Their, their chief of defense was a uniformed, it was a National Guard officer, but a uniformed National Guard officer where we have a, right, a civilian secretary in charge of our secretary of defense. And so Western leaders were really pushing for something like that. And my argument was, well, you have to demonstrate how this is advantageous, right? They're in the middle of a war and we're trying to tell them, hey, put a civilian in charge of your military. They don't understand how that's going to benefit them. And so let's be strategic about how we think about which reforms that we want to put on them. And taking a step back, right, previously, not so much necessarily with Zelensky, but for a number of years, you had a choice between one corrupt oligarch and another, as the Ukrainians often viewed it, right, as far as who they could vote for. Uh, And so let's just say if it's a corrupt oligarch that's running the country, would you really want him to appoint this, you know, senior defense official? Or would you rather have that actually be a uniform member of the military when there's no threat of a coup in that nation? And it, I don't think I've seen one, you know, since or even a hint of it since the fall of the um, right since the fall of the Soviet Union. And, and so if that's one of the greater fears of why you want civilian control of the military, then why are we necessarily pushing for this when we really want to focus on some of their operational improvements? that are also institutional improvements. So speaking of that, of, of I guess, operational performance, um, you know, venturing into the hypothetical a little bit, but in the event of open conflict, compared to, say, what happened in 2014 and 2015, how well-equipped and well-prepared today is the Ukrainian military to fight effectively? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, right? If the Russians decided to send troops across the border as they did in Georgia in 2008, Right. They sent about 40,000 soldiers, about 1,200 uh, armored vehicles across the border into Georgia at the tactical level. Right. Kind of battalion or brigade on down. The Georgians actually outfought the Russians and the Russians learned a lot from their experience there. But and this was a Georgian army that was really trained on fighting counterinsurgency. And their best brigade was was actually overseas supporting uh, coalition efforts uh, overseas. But they fought the Russians very well at the tactical level. And I think that's what you would see here, right? The Ukrainian reforms, uh, they would really, you know, significantly hurt Russia. Like I said, when the T-90s came across the border in 2014, 2015, the Ukrainians didn't really have much to counter that. Well, in 2017, we, we, we provided Javelin weapon systems, which is, you, you know, uh, for those that aren't really familiar with it, right? They're man portable self-guided missiles that are extremely accurate, extremely effective and easy to use. So those would inflict heavy losses, right? On the Russians where before, right? They could kind of move their tanks with, with impunity for the most part, right? So they're going to take more losses that way. Uh, they're armed or being armed with Stinger missiles, which again, extremely effective at taking out the Russians air force. When the Russians went into Georgia and that's, 
if you want to look at what would it look like with troop formations coming across, Georgia is probably the best example. It, it, it's really the only example since they um, right, use kind of hybrid means to seize Crimea in 2014 and, and, and lower level support of the separatists in the Donbass. And so the Georgians actually took out 22 of, uh, up to or reported 22 Russian aircraft during that war. Uh, to include a, a, one of their strategic bombers, which really surprised the Russians, and they really held back their air force after that time. And so I think that's what you would see this time, right? Once you know tank formations and mechanized infantry formations rolled across the border, they would have air force and support testing the the air defense systems of Ukraine, and now armed with Stinger missiles again that are just like the Javelins, fairly easy to use, accurate, uh, extremely lethal. Then we would see them hold back their air force and kind of rely on their multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, from farther back, which aren't as accurate to kind of support that advance. Georgia, I think, is a really important case to look at, um, which, you know, it sounds like you agree. If we return to, you know, kind of the institutional level in Ukraine, which in a sense, I guess, is the political level, are there other lessons to take from what happened in 2008? Because Georgia, you know, there, I think there were some pretty important political dynamics at play as well. And I wonder just whether or not we can learn anything from there that, that is relevant today in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I think there were some, you know, miscommunications, mixed signals being sent all around in 2008. As, as you said, President Shakashvili of Georgia, he expected Western support. And his war, right, it was, uh, many believe it was preemptive, right? He was, he was, Russia had, was going to launch this war. The indicators were there. He was just kind of doing it on his own terms. Uh, Russia claiming, right, the responsibility to protect. They were arguing they're coming to defense of the South Ossetians from uh, genocide by by their Georgians and their defensive Russians citizens there, but it, it was not credible. Um, but I think, and we were sending mixed signals in terms of right NATO membership for Georgia. And this was Putin reacting. Uh, I think this time that the signals have been pretty clear from the West. No one's saying, Hey, Ukraine's joining NATO anytime soon. At the same time, right, no Western nation is going to say, hey, no, we can't promise that Georgia or Ukraine can't join NATO. That's that's a sovereign territory. Um, and we've been pretty clear, right? Georgia was a surprise, right? Um, the war, Russia launched that by surprise. We didn't have a chance to send messages in advance. Same thing with Ukraine in 2014. It came as a big surprise. This war, if he goes across the border into Ukraine, it's it's known in advance, right? We are providing signaling, you know, telling him it, it will be significant. Uh, and I think that's one of the differences here. It's it's not going to be a surprise. We are, you know, providing these clear messages that can't be misinterpreted, right? It's question is, are they going to be believable, believed or not? But but it's been pretty clear. And, and the, you know, I, one report by one report, the economic sanctions based off of, the, uh, you know, their seizure of the Crimea have been painful on Russia, anywhere from two to five Two and a half to three percent of their GDP has been reduced because of the sanctions, or estimated fifty billion dollars a year. Uh, so you know these can be significant, and and if he would invade Ukraine, it would be you know fairly significant. There has been. Uh... Well, since Minsk, there's been a ceasefire in place. But in reality, there are hundreds of violations every year. And in some years, um, I've heard statistics that, you know, put those violations well into the thousands. Ukrainian forces suffer casualties fairly regularly from artillery strikes. 
uh, I have heard during this period of you know ceasefire or, or quasi ceasefire, I've heard the conflict described, including by you, is essentially World War One style trench warfare with modern technology. In the event of an invasion, what would the fighting uh, during that period look like? Yeah, I mean, and, and the description that we always we did describe it over there, right? Is if the current conflict is kind of a trench warfare, World War One, with with drones and twenty first century technology, but that's also only because it's in a ceasefire, right? If the ceasefire listed, it, it would immediately go back to return to maneuver warfare. They would not be hunkered down in the trenches, and we recognize that. But yeah, what you would see based off of you know based purely off of two thousand and eight and twenty fourteen, what would you expect to see? Okay. Uh, Russia's already probing, right, the cyber, you know, before launching an attack, they're going to insert Spetsnaz, probably out of uniform, right, probably violating laws of international conflict. Uh, and then when they initiate the conflict, right, cyber attacks, sever the communications between Kiev and the forces in the field. Uh, then they're going to, you know, Spetsnaz are going to go in early, right, kind of lay the groundwork, do what they can do. Formations will go across, supported by the Air Force, like I said before. Uh, right. And so you're going to see this kind of, you know, irregular and, and information operations, you know, supporting that Russians attacking, you know, using information operations on the troops in the field, trying to trying to get them to, to, to not fight. But but they're going to fight. What are we going to see from the from the Ukrainians? Right. It's it's going to be that maneuver warfare. Uh, right. As I said, right. Javelins are going to start to take out some of their tanks. Air, the man pads, the Stinger missiles are going to take out some of their aircraft. That's going to slow the Russians down. The other thing that we see that didn't exist, and right, I said in 2014, we had the volunteers. Well, the volunteers were reactive. They ran out to the border. Really, since Zelensky has been president, right, we've seen over the last two or three years, these volunteers actively training, and it's now encoded in law that they have to resist if there's an invasion. And so now we see the entire population where they're, they're right, they're going to do spoiling attacks, provide intelligence to the Ukrainian troops as a, as a Russian force is coming you know, across the border and advancing however far they want to advance. And then once the, once Russia gets as far as they want to get, or once they occupy what they do, that then they're required, right, to conduct insurgency. And, and so the, communicating to Russia that, hey, this is going to be painful, right? You're going to lose a lot more tanks coming across. It's not going to be like 2016 or, I mean, 2014, 2015. You're going to lose aircraft. We, Right, just by sheer size of the Russian military, you're going to get to a certain point. But then once you get here, we're just going to continue to act harassing attacks on you, you know, uh, sabotage. And eventually you're going to pull out just like you did in Afghanistan in the 80s. And on top of that, right, all these inter international sanctions that are going to come, right, it's a basically deterrent message to Russia that, hey, you know you can get where you want just by the sheer size of your military. But it's too costly and you know it'll be too costly to do it and too costly to maintain it therefore you're not going to do it and, and keep in mind you know as you that right a lot of times russians movement of troops and their and their use of uh their military actually supports their information operations so these troops these 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 number of troops on the border may just be a negotiating tactic for russia and he may have no intent of sending them across the border but at the same time the west has to right clearly communicate what a response would be. You know, in a sense, there are um, a few conditions that I think is pretty intuitive, but they make the U.S. response a little bit tricky. Ukraine isn't a NATO member, so we aren't bound by Article 5 to come to Ukraine's defense. At the same time, 
we have clearly signaled that we uh, we have an interest in Ukraine not having its territory picked apart by Russia, for instance, uh, you know, for very obvious reasons. So both now in 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 the current period of I guess clearly heightened tensions, and in the event of uh, you know potential conflict, what can the U.S. do, and and maybe what should the U.S. do uh, to support Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been doing that over the last four years, right? I mean, we provided $2.5 billion in aid basically for the train and equip mission, right? So Ukraine is that much more prepared than they've been, uh, right? The signal that we've made politically, right, that Biden's made, uh, right, that any res- right any response, will if they do any kind of invasion, it'll be a significant response. Uh, those kind of things. It, yeah, I don't want to get into the discussion of, okay, what, you know, should we actually go over there and physically defend with them? But right, providing those arms, right, allowing the Estonians, the Latvians, and the Lithuanians to provide javelins and stinger missiles to Ukraine in their defense. So I think we'll wrap up with this one uh, final question. You've highlighted at the tactical level that the Ukrainian military is is very capable, much better equipped certainly than they were six or seven years ago. Based on your experience in the country over those two years and 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 from watching closely since then, if you look at the level of strategy formulation, which, you know, granted, this is perhaps a less complicated endeavor when there is one clear and uh, overwhelming threat, quite literally on the horizon. But if you look at that strategic level, and then you look at their ability to say, okay, this is our strategic objective, and we know we have capable tactical formations, um, you know, essentially operational art, the ability to ensure that those tactical capabilities are best leveraged in pursuit of, uh, of, of the overarching goal. At those two levels, strategic and operational, uh, have you seen improvements or, or changes in any way over the past several years? Does, does either of them represent a particular strength or, uh, or a particular vulnerability? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're fairly capable, right? I mean, it's a much more narrow mission because it's defense of their country versus the kind of the U.S. and power projection, where I think you have to have a lot broader or, or deeper understanding of what that means at kind of the operational strategic level. And hey, look at our previous wars. We have our records not been so so well either. But I think purely in the defense of their nation, I think they have a pretty good grasp of that. Yeah, there's areas that are weaker again, right? Just because Russia's been bigger, right? Their cyber defense is nowhere near cyber's, uh, Russia's cyber attack capability, but that's because Russia's been investing in this for 20 plus years and continues to invest in this. Uh, and right, and Russia sees, again, as we look at what Russia is doing, right? Russia sees no conceptual difference between peacetime and wartime, right? In the West, we kind of view this, you're at war or not at war. That's not how Russia sees anything, right? There, there is no difference for them, Right. They can employ their military in times of peace, as we see it, or, right, they're going to employ political and economic means in times of war. Uh, and so, I th- but I think Ukraine would, would do well at those levels. It's just, right, Russia is just so much bigger than they are, right? Their military is just massive. And so they would fight extremely well, but ultimately they're going to get overwhelmed. Well, Liam, I think... Um I think we will leave it there. But I want to thank you again for the conversation and for, for sharing what, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, is a, is a really unique and, and firsthand experience-based perspective on, um, on a really complicated situation. So thank you. Thank you.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thank you.